Okay, we're going to start today with the 88th Psalm. This is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician set to Mahalat Leonot, a contemplation of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves, Selah. You have put away my acquaintances far from me, you have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I, am, I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day, like, all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Heavenly Father, there are times when we feel we're in darkness. There are times that we feel we're engulfed by sorrow or by troubles. And uh, you are ever there with us. You are there with us. And we're learning that as we go through your wonderful book of uh, Genesis, how your hand is upon the people of the world. And you do look out for our good, despite the fact that we don't always see it. I thank you, Lord, for the chance to meet here on Sunday morning and to uh, bring you praise and glory and honor. And I thank you for each person that's come and who is willing to submit their heart to you and to uh, learn about your word and to share in your goodness and to think on the things that you have given us in our lives. We give you the praise and the glory that you're due and we just want to make sure that uh, our souls are in line with uh, uh, heading in the right direction towards you at every moment. So help us to do this. Remind us throughout each day to keep our thoughts and minds focused on you alone. Lord, there are so many things that distract us from being able to do that and just Help us in those times of distraction. Help us to fulfill your word in uh, Hebrews 3.1. Let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. And in Hebrews 12.2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And if we do this, we know that everything will be right. We thank you for the opportunity once again to meet here. And may this uh, service be satisfying to you and glorious to you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we got a uh, few announcements today. Um, uh, you know, I say this every week, and I'm, I'm not sure what direction to go with it this week, but I always say, uh, please remember to invite others to Church on the Beach. But uh, the people on the video probably can't see this. Um, they're starting to cut down all of the trees here, and they're all going to be gone very soon. And uh, it's not going to be a place where we can meet without a ton of noise because the trees have kept the noise down. They've kept the heat down. Um, uh, I'm not sure what direction we're going to turn in the next uh, two weeks probably, but we'll try to meet here again next week. Um, I had uh, Darlene over here call me about a church that uh, a building that is right over in the Gulfgate area that is no longer being used and uh, it's for rent. 
And uh, if I can figure out a way to pay the rent, maybe we'll do that. Or the building is also for sale. And, uh, you know, if somebody on uh, YouTube has enough money to buy the church, it's not expensive. It's uh, Actually, I was surprised at the price when I looked at it this morning. But uh, it would be a place where we could at least meet and have some quiet and not have airplanes flying overhead and uh, crows landing on us and all those things. But I... I do want to continue to ask you to invite others until we know what's going on. I don't want to be a defeatist because the Lord understands everything and he has his hand on all things. And uh, so he'll, he'll direct. I'm not worried about it, but I'm confused as to what direction to go. So if you think of other options, another place to meet that has shade, uh, that would be wonderful. And uh, if not, then uh, like I say, I'll keep looking for a building. And as a final option, and uh, this is something that's always been on the table with me, I am always looking to be a pastor of a church, and it doesn't have to be a big one. I, you know, I, I'll preach to 10 people if, uh, if that's where the Lord sends me. And uh, for the first time since I actually was ordained as a minister, I'm considering that if a church calls me from out of Florida, that I'll take that as well, because uh, his word needs to be preached, and uh, it's the only thing I want to do with my life. So keep that in mind. Uh, like I say, I, I'm not a defeatist with this. I just need to be realistic that sitting in the hot sun, 99% of the people in the world simply can't do it. And there's a couple tough people like my mom here and Kelly Carlin and a couple others that couldn't care if they're in the heat of the day. But uh, uh, for the most people, we, uh, we need to have at least shade over our head. So there you go. Um, I have uh, Paul and Elaine Stoll, who... I bring up every week, and I think I've got two more weeks to bring them up, and they'll be done with their mission work in Japan. And uh, when they come back, because, you know, they attended church on the beach, and we've been supporting them from this church, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to tell them when they arrive, because uh, we don't know the direction yet. But uh, please keep Paul and Elaine in prayer, because they really are wonderful people, and uh, I know that they are really, really sad about leaving the people they've come to know in Japan. So uh, Paul and Elaine stole. And uh, I was going to make some new Church on the Beach flyers. I've got like five left, and I'm not even going to bother with that until we have a direction, and uh, we'll see uh, what happens there. But uh, the good news is that we're continuing on, at least today, and we're in our 53rd sermon from the book of Genesis. And it's going to be from Genesis 24, our third sermon in this chapter, and then we'll have one more next week, which I, unless it's raining or just impossible, I'm going to do it here at the beach because I want to finish out this uh, series and uh, then after that, I'll do a, a Christmas sermon. I think it'll be the 23rd then. So we'll try to think of something to uh, preach about for Christmas. And um, I think that's all of the announcements I have. I uh, would like to make a special announcement, uh, not actually part of the regular announcement. And I almost dread doing this. And the reason why is because everybody here has family that is suffering. Everybody here has their own trials and their own uh, uh, ills and their woes. And uh, I don't ever want to ask for anything special. But at the same time, this is on my heart, is that my father had a stroke this past Wednesday. And um, so, you know, if, if you would add him into the prayers that we submit for all of the people on Church of the Beach each week, I would appreciate that. He's doing much, much better. I mean, it was amazing. He happened to be at the one restaurant, I think, in all of Sarasota that had oxygen there. And so they put him on oxygen immediately. The uh, ambulance was a couple feet from uh, the hospital. I mean, literally, it was just... It, it, everything was very, very well orchestrated for my father to be uh, very quickly returned to healing. And, uh, you know, when you have a stroke, you lose half of your body. He's already moving his arm all the way up. They've taken him out of ICU and put him in uh, uh, a regular room. 
And uh, I just thank the Lord for that. But I, I don't want to elevate that above anybody else's concerns or needs. You know that I love each person that comes out here and their needs, and they're on my heart throughout the week, and there's never a day I don't pray for all the people at Church on the Beach in general, and uh, in sp- particular if necessary, if I know of something that's uh, on somebody's mind or in their life. But uh, anyway... Um, let me go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll do a New Testament reading. I was thinking about skipping it this week just simply because I didn't know how hot it would be out here. But I think it'll be okay because you're all in the shade at least. And uh, so we're going to read Romans 9, 1 through 13. And all I'm going to do is just real quickly read through it and uh, just give you a quick analysis. Nothing deep. But uh, I want to at least have the New Testament included. And uh, another reason why I was thinking about this morning is we're going to have a couple long New Testament passages to put things into context. But uh, let's go ahead and do uh, Romans 9, 1 through 13. I tell the truth in Christ. This is Paul writing to the uh, Romans. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. What he's doing is he's setting up his uh, uh, discourse on the state of the Jewish people in the world. And uh, Romans 9 through 11 speaks of it in detail. And there are different views on how to interpret these verses. The correct view, I'm telling you that, and I still want you to study and not believe me, but the correct view is that God is not done with the Jewish people. He has a plan for them. He has reinserted them into the land of Israel divinely so that they will be there when they receive their Messiah back. And uh, I'm absolutely certain of this. We did not replace Israel in the church. We are a dispensation which is separate from that. And these days are coming to their fulfillment right before our eyes, and uh, I may mention that uh, I will in uh, just a couple minutes in our uh, This Day in History. But uh, here he goes with his, uh, the beginning of his discourse on the state of the Jewish people. Um, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, which means he's a Jew, he's an Israelite, and he explains that in verse 4, Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, meaning the people we're talking about now. Abraham is a father, and then Isaac and Jacob, and even in the book of Acts, David is called a patriarch, or a first father. So these are the fathers that he's speaking of. Um, The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. And the reason why he said according to the flesh is because Jesus Christ is not just a man. He is the God-man. And he makes that absolutely clear in his writings that we are worshiping God Almighty when we worship Jesus Christ. He is the union of flesh with God. And it's called the incarnation, which is something, as I said, we'll celebrate that in another week or two. But uh, Jesus Christ is, as I say, the point where the finite meets the infinite. And he is our mediator back to the God that we cannot otherwise perceive. So he says, um, uh, verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he's going to make a point about this. God gave the word to Israel, but some of them just didn't accept the word. And they're not really truly Israel in the sense of the meaning of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. And we talked about that in uh, verse chapter 15 of Genesis and in several other chapters, that Isaac is the son of promise. Only the son of promise is the one that is considered. Ishmael is a son of God as well, and yet he was not considered in the divine election of God. So uh, here we have um, 
uh, who is the son of promise. Uh, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. He's saying that you do not inherit sonship simply because you are a son of Abraham through flesh. You inherit sonship by calling on God in the way that he determines. And in our dispensation, it is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And uh, that's what he's saying. Um, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah had been barren for many, many long years. And he says, I'm going to come and your wife is going to have a son. It was a birth of the miraculous, just as was the birth of Jesus Christ, born from a virgin's womb. And this is what God is doing in human history. He's showing pictures in the old of what is being revealed in the new. And we're going to see that today again, as we've seen in the past three weeks with, uh, or two weeks with uh, chapter 24, how he is picturing something glorious that pertains to each person here, if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then he says, verse 10, and not only, not this only, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, what he's saying here is something we're going to be talking about in about three or four weeks. I don't know exactly when the sermon is coming up, but it's going to be on the miraculous birth of the children of Rebecca, who we're going to talk about today. She's going to have two children in her womb, and before either is born, God divinely and sovereignly chooses that the older will serve the younger. And uh, that's uh, the doctrine of divine election. That also goes in with the doctrine of predestination. It's a very complicated issue. And when we get to that sermon, it's going to take thinking. It's not just going to be something that we can say, oh, well, that's easy to understand. It is, it is a complicated thing. And uh, there are big differences in what different churches believe about election and uh, predestination. But anyway, that's our New Testament reading for today. Just a short little analysis of Romans 9. And I put the Bible down and uh, I want to read you one more psalm before we actually get into it. And this will be the 90th psalm. And uh, just as a little squiggle for your brain, the 90th psalm is the oldest psalm in the Bible. It was written by Moses, the man of God. And uh, so here you go. If you want to know which is the oldest psalm in the Bible, we're going to read it right now. This starts book four of the Psalter. There's five books in the Psalter and this starts book four. It's uh, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like uh, asleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and it grows up. Even in the evening it is cut down and withers. And I'll stop right there and I'll, I'll mention, I've said this in many sermons, that uh, we look at the people of the world and young, healthy people and uh, uh, the next thing you turn around and they're old and they're, they're falling to pieces or they're dying of a heart attack or something. And uh, this is the way of the world. We are but grass before the face of the Lord. And uh, he is from everlasting to everlasting. So each one of us needs to remember that. We need to hold it in our hearts because every one of us is going to get old. We are going to die and we need to be ready to meet our maker. We'll talk about that a little more in the sermon as well. Verse seven, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. 
For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Wonderful words from Moses. So uh, here we go. We'll get into uh, this day in history. If you've never been here before, every week I pick out a couple things that happened in history and I talk about them for a couple minutes. And uh, uh, there wasn't a lot on this day in history, but a couple fun things. A guy named Levant M. Richardson received a patent for the first ball bearing roller skate. And uh, if you're under 40 years old, you probably don't even know what roller skates really are, but they were pretty punishing. I mean, you, you ground around on these things and down on 12th Street, we had a place, I think it's still there, called the Stardust, and uh, we'd go roller skating around there, and uh, they were uncomfortable, and they were hard to work, and yet people, I saw people dance on the things. And nowadays, we got things with enclosed bearings, and they're quiet, and, and uh, you know, times have changed, but that was back in 1884. And uh, then in 1917, I said I'd mention this, Turkish troops surrounded Jerusalem to, uh, surrendered Jerusalem to the British, led by Allenby. And this was divinely orchestrated by God in order to set up the British mandate, which led to the reestablishment of the state of Israel. And there was no coincidence in this. Apparently, this is something I heard. I can't vouch that it's true, but I heard it on a very reliable source that Allenby, um, they had a plane drop over Jerusalem or fly over Jerusalem. And this was before planes had really been seen in the Middle East. And it dropped leaflets. And the way they translated his name Allenby was very similar to the word Allah. And so these Muslims, these Turkish Muslims, gave up without fighting for the most part because they thought it was a sign from God. This bird from heaven is dropping leaflets saying, you know, you need to surrender to the uh, British people. And I thought that was a very interesting story. Um, I don't know how to determine if it's true. I have looked, and uh, uh, but the, the source that I heard it from uh, was, was very reliable. But there you go. Israel's back in her land, the people, and... Uh, uh, we're just waiting to see God's fulfillment of the ages. And I'm excited every day to turn on the news and see how things are coming just into focus the way the Bible proclaimed. Um, then we have in 1941, China, who was not a big participant in World War II, but they did declare war on Japan, Germany, and Italy. And uh, we were allied with them. We had troops over there flying from Burma to China, and uh, uh, a little bit went on. But China did suffer heavily under the Japanese. Many, many hundreds of thousands were lost in a city called Nanking, and uh, they have never forgotten that. And there's still a lot of ill will between Japan and China because of that. And uh, I don't know how that's going to fit into the uh, end time scenario, but I'm certain it will. And uh, let's see here, in 1987, something back to Israel again, West Bank Palestinians launched an intifada, which is an uprising, and uh, it was against Israeli occupation. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and if anybody doesn't like this, you know, I, I, I can't help you. This is the way of the world. When a nation conquers another nation in war, that land belongs to the conquerors. That's just the way it is. There's no 
exception in history except for the nations that give the land back to the people. And there are very few exceptions in that. One of them is the United States. When we conquer somebody in war, we generally give them their freedom back. And uh, there are a few protectorates that we have around the world, Guam and Puerto Rico and places like that, that they have chosen to remain under us. They use our money, etc. But uh, Okinawa was part of Japan, where my wife is from. We uh, conquered Japan, we kept Okinawa, and eventually it was given back to the Japanese. Um, this is the way of the world. But when it comes to Israel, it's the one exception that the United Nations finds fault in, is that Israel won these lands, just the way the Bible said they would too. I want you all to know this right in the Bible, that they won these lands and that they belong to Israel. And yet the world is coming to divide the land. They've already done it with the Gaza Strip, and now they're trying to do it to the West Bank. And when that happens... The prophecy of Joel 3, verse 1, will come to pass, where it says, I will bring all of the nations of the world down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means where the Lord judges. And there I will judge them for my inheritance, my people Israel. For they have, and he talks about a couple things they've done to Israel over the years, but the last part of that verse says they have divided my land. And that's coming to a uh, theater near you very soon. So uh, just be prepared that the world is coming against Israel. And uh, right or wrong, whether you like that or not, that's just the way it is. So, um, uh, 1993, astronauts aboard the space shuttle Endeavour completed repairs to the Hubble Space Telescope. And I have to tell you something, that was, of all of the achievements of humanity, the Hubble Space Telescope ranks among the foremost. Now, it went up there and it was damaged, it, they made an error in the, the mirror, and it was a three or four, five, whatever, billion dollar piece of junk floating around. And some very intelligent people did a fix to this mirror. And they did it in outer space. They, they did the fix on Earth. They flew it up there. And it was, the most it was more precise than any medical surgery that you could imagine. It had to be exact. And yet now we can look out and we can see the heavens. Just as the 19th Psalm says, they declare the glory of God. And here we can see things in the heavens that are simply astonishing. And people have one of two views on what we see out there. Oh, God is just, it's impossible. One God couldn't have done all this. And there are people that hold that view. I have an old boss I have uh, breakfast with once a month. And uh, he, he just, after looking out there, he says, I just can't believe that one God could do all this. And then you have the other view, which is my personal view. My God, how great you are. How absolutely astonishing you are to see what you have done and what you've made for us to reason out and to think through and the glory of your work. Anyway, the Psalms describe how God did it. The book of Job describes how God did it. And people still diminish those things. And they say, oh, it blew itself into existence. Well, a universe that blew itself into existence means that it existed before it existed, which is impossible. It's a logical contradiction. No, there really is a God. Anyway, um, Clarence Birdseye was born this day in 1886. And he's the guy that gave us Fresh Frozen. You see Birdseye all over the stores even today. And then uh, somebody kind of personal to our family, a guy named Emmett Kelly, um, we have uh, a lot of people that knew the fair people here in Sarasota. My uncle's visiting, and he probably knew some of them back in the early days of Sarasota. And uh, Emmett Kelly is a, a great clown. Um, he was born in 1898. And then we have three actors that were born. Douglas Fairbanks was in 1909, Kirk Douglas in 1918, and Red Fox in 1922. And going back to the 90th Psalm, here we are, we're just grass. We just were born... We're, we're great people, and all of a sudden we fade away, but God is eternal. So we need to remember that when we look in the mirror, that we're not going to last forever and that we have choices to make. And we'll go through that a little bit today. I, I don't want to speak anymore and uh, keep things going too long, but uh, I will read you 
the text for today before we get into it. And it's a little bit long because it includes something that uh, we went through last week. But uh, I dare not skip over it so that you know exactly where we are and what we're going through. This is uh, Genesis 24, verses 29 through 52. And the sermon today is entitled, A Work of the Spirit. So Genesis 24, starting with the 29th verse. And I'll mention right now before we go any further, this is the first time I've ever used a chair, but I just can't stand up. My back can't handle it. And so I apologize for sitting while I'm preaching, but it's just something that's it's become necessary. Uh, I can do almost anything except stand still for an hour. So um, here we go. Verse uh, 29, it says, um, Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to meet the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And my Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I'd finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard the words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Uh, Yes, that's where I want to finish, right there. May the Lord speak to us through that wonderful story today. Now, today's sermon is going to have, as I said, a bit of a recounting of much of what occurred in the previous sermon. And so we're going to go through those verses without much commentary, but I'm not going to skip them. I'm going to read them as we go through it, so we'll keep continuity in the, the biblical traveling adventure that we're on. 
The Bible will often repeat things in passages, and it'll do it for a variety of reasons. And today's repetition is for Rebecca's family to understand that what has come about was divinely orchestrated. In the repetition, maybe we can see our own testimony about the time we came to Jesus Christ. What happens to us is a benefit to others. And so we repeat it to them so that they have the same assurance that we have. They say, well, you know, what happened to me kind of happened to you. And, yeah, maybe I can call on Jesus Christ as Lord. It's important for you to understand, because a lot of people, I've heard this before, where people say, I really don't have a testimony. It's important to understand that your calling does not have to be dramatic. And it doesn't have to be suspenseful in any way in order to convince others. You just simply need to be truthful and Give them what occurred to you in your life as a demonstration of how God took it and molded you into the person you are in Jesus Christ. And our text verse for today comes from Matthew chapter 24. It says, uh, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. The Lord commissions those whom he chooses. However, there are some who stand in the Lord's house who are servants, but they are faithless in their tasks. Maybe they serve the master because he's kind and easy, and he just directs simple things for us. And there are people that are out there in the ministry, and they they can get money from, you know, I'm going to go over and be a missionary. And they don't do anything for the Lord. They just get the money that they raised on the way over. There are people that preach in churches, and they have No desire to do anything except get their weekly paycheck. And that's the way it is in the world. Or maybe they steal from God's people. And there are people that do that. And it's not just as the plate goes by, but they stand in the pulpit and they tell you things that you want to hear so that they will benefit from your wallet. There are people like that. But there are also people who are faithful and that they serve the Lord out of a good and contrite heart. This is the way of the world. And we need to look in the mirror and we need to decide What type of people are we going to be? How are we going to be remembered when we stand before our own master? And you know, that question stands. And so each one of us needs to evaluate it. May God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is receiving the spirit. Now, before we actually start looking at today's verses, we need to remind ourselves of what these verses picture. Quite a few people here today weren't here in the past few weeks, and if they haven't watched this online, they may not understand where we are. But what they do is they form a story which tells us of how God continued to select people who would be a part of the family of God and that would ultimately lead to the person of Jesus Christ. But they also picture his greater work in the story of redemption for all of humanity. The servant that we're talking about is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't speak of himself, but he speaks the master's words. And if you remember from those sermons, it was Abraham who gave the words for the spirit to speak. He's not speaking on his own authority. And then we have a picture of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, who is a picture of Jesus, the son of God. And the servant is going to procure a bride for Isaac. And that bride is Rebecca, and she pictures the church of God's people. And Isaac, as I said, is the son of promise. He is the one that is going to receive this bride at some point in the future when the Spirit accomplishes his task on earth. Now, I want to remind you, in case you don't know this, if you didn't hear this last week, of the meaning of Rebecca's name so that we can see how this account is being worked together 
by a very wise creator who chooses each word, each action, and each name to tell us of his wisdom in the unfolding story of what goes on in the Bible. The name Rebecca denotes the tying up, believe it or not, of cattle for their protection, for the establishment of their home, and to keep them from wandering off. So within this name lies the notion that individuals are placed together by some higher authority or someone that's smarter than they are. The cattle rancher is hopefully smarter than the cattle. God is certainly smarter than each of us. And if you think of yourself as Rebecca in this story that we're looking at, God is divinely orchestrating your life as well. Everything that is occurring is happening according to his purposes, whether you like it or not, or whether you perceive it or not. If you are a saved believer in Jesus Christ, he is working your life, life out for a wonderful purpose. And if you're not, I hope that you will make your mind up today to follow this Lord who is infinitely wise and really infinitely glorious. Keep these things in mind and see how God has taken and orchestrated this woman, this young girl's life to select her for the son of Abraham, Isaac, who is the son of promise and see how none of this occurs by mere chance. Verse 29, now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban and Laban ran out to meet the man by the well. Now I want you to notice if you saw this last week that the servant did not follow Rebecca back to the house. Instead, he stayed at the well. This tells us that we do not receive the water of life, meaning the gospel and Jesus Christ through our family. And this is a category mistake that I made in my own life for almost 36 years. I was over in Muslim countries and Buddhist countries and people would say, you know, what do you believe? And I said, well, I'm a Christian. I didn't know who Jesus Christ was. My parents were Christians and I thought, well, I must be a Christian because they are. It doesn't work that way. Jesus does not transfer automatically by birth, but rather every individual needs to come to him personally or you are not a Christian. That's the way of the world of Jesus Christ. Laban has a counterpart in the New Testament. Now, whether he is a saved person or not is very hard to tell. But one thing is sure, if he is a saved believer, if he came to God at some point in his life, he is what we would call a carnal Christian in today's lingo. Someone who has made a commitment to the Lord, but never really follows through with it. And he doesn't live the life in any meaningful way. Laban's name means white, but it also means brick. And the, it could possibly be the reason for this is that because when you fire a brick, it actually turns whiter. Man was made from the dust, and as we saw last week in the New Testament, believers are equated with jars of clay. Paul writes about that in the New Testament, saying that we are jars of clay. And what does that mean? We're a jar and we're waiting to be filled with the Spirit of God. Being a brick, however, does not allow for any filling. They're hard, they're solid, they're, they're unyielding in anything that would have to do with the filling of God's Spirit. Just as the Tower of Babel, it was, when it was made, it was made of bricks. And the same root word for making bricks is the name of Laban. So they're Labaning Labans in order to build the Tower of Babel. And because he is a brick, unless he softens back into clay and the Lord remolds him into a jar, he will never really come to know the Lord personally. And there's a wonderful life application in here for each one of us because we are jars of clay. And we are waiting either to be filled with the Spirit or with something else. And the question is, what are you going to allow your life to be filled with? There are good things and there are bad things to be filled with. And i got to tell you what, if you don't fill it with Jesus Christ, you will fill it with something else. And so this guy, according to the verse, ran out to the man by the well. It seems like he's like one of us. But remember what happened last week with Rebecca. The servant ran to Rebecca. 
not the other way around. The question is, why is he running to the servant? Verse 30. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. The Bible specifically notes Laban as having seen this expensive nose ring and these expensive bracelets and that they were given to Rebekah. Those precious gifts, along with what she said, caused him to rush out to the servant at the well. And where does he stand? By the camels. And that should tell us something because the camels are where the gifts are. Here we have a shadow of a man known as Simon the Sorcerer who is found in Acts chapter 8. And we cannot understand Laban without noting the account of Simon. And so let's read that account together. Here's what it says. But there was a certain man called Simon who had previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So here's this guy, he's a sorcerer, and he's claiming to be somebody great. And see if you can see how he pictures Laban here. Um, but when they believed Philip, this guy is preaching, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet... He had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray, if perhaps God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you were poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now I want to know, do you see the parallels between Simon and Laban? Laban saw the gifts given to Rebecca by the servant at the well. And Simon saw the gifts given by the spirit of Christ's bride from the well of salvation. Laban rushed to where the gifts were, which was on the camels, and he was looking for the same thing that Simon did. What it comes down to with Laban is personal benefit rather than a desire for God. And this does not mean, and I don't want us to make this error because the Bible doesn't speak it, but it doesn't mean that this brick named Laban didn't turn back into soft clay. And it doesn't mean that the sorcerer named Simon didn't repent and accept what the Spirit freely offers. But it does show us the hardness of human hearts as we live apart from God and as we strive to find God in whatever manifestation, whether it's Buddha or Allah or whatever else, our hearts are hard to the things of the Spirit. Now think of those who come to churches and see all of the gifts that the Spirit offers. The question is, do they rush to get those gifts or do they with an open heart allowed the Spirit to come in and fill them. And the difference really is more than galactic. I've got to tell you that right now. Whatever the state of Simon the sorcerer was, to this day there is a term in Christianity that is used to describe somebody like he is in the Bible. And it's named after him. It's called simony. 
Simony is specifically the practice of buying or selling spiritual gifts, benefits, or pardons, or relics, or indulgences, or anything else like that. And it's named after this guy. And I have to tell you what, the halls of Christianity are filled with Simonizers even today. This didn't die in middle, medieval times when people were buying fingers of saints and praying to them and stuff like that. Today, you go on to Christian TV and there's people selling miracle healing water. And they're saying, selling prayer cloths, these little things, and we'll, we'll pray over them. If you send us something, then we'll uh, send you one of these cheesy little prayer cloths. And I got to tell you, that's not the way that the, the Spirit of God works. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. We don't need to go through a televangelist or a preacher or a priest or anybody else to commune with the living God. We need to go through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to get there. And so don't be fooled by Simonizers. In churches today, money and not Christ is the king. And the lust for gold will always draw Laban to the well. So please watch out for these people and watch out for it in your own self as well. And I have to tell you something. There is another type of simony that goes on in churches, and it is the desire to be ultra-spiritual. There are people who pretend to speak tongues in churches simply because it makes them look holy in front of other people. And there are people that pretend prophecy. And there are people that pretend visions. And they pretend understanding of the Bible when they've never read the Bible once in their life. But they're all specialists on little precepts about God's word without taking the whole counsel of God. And they are at the same time unyielding in their hearts and their love for God. So I have a question for you, and I didn't know this until about a year ago, and maybe you don't know this either, but do you know how many pastors get their sermons out of books or online? I had no idea. I, I, it never would have even crossed my mind that I would go to a book and have it all laid out for me with all the life applications and everything. And I just put in, you know, Kelly's name instead of Jane, who's listed in the book. And I have a friend who happens to be attending here today, and he told me that his pastor in church admitted that he went online to get his sermons. And I thought, that is, that is simony at its peak. That is absolutely disgusting to me that somebody cannot read God's word and come to an understanding of it to the point where they will preach it back to the people of God. This is the only way that we can fellowship with God is to know Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to know Jesus Christ, and that is through his word. There's no other way. And so for people to sell their position in the, the pastorate or in mission work, it, it, it's appalling. I, I just cannot believe it. So simony, in other words, is not just a disease of lay people. It is an affliction of the human heart. We need to watch out for simonizers. Verse 31, and he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? This is Laban speaking to the, the uh, servant. Laban, he has this excitement about all the potential riches, and he calls out to the sermon, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Come inside and fill my house. It's not by the well that you belong, but in here. Is this what we're going to call out to the Spirit? And the question is, are we going to call out to him in truth? Are we asking him in for the benefits, or are we asking him because we want to have a relationship with God? Verse 31 continues, For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Some ancient commentators look at this particular verse, and they comment that the preparation of the house included removing household items from view, these things that they worshiped. And I got to tell you, that's a very good analysis because later we're going to encounter Laban again in about four or five chapters. And in his house, he is going to still have household gods. The symbolism again reaches to every one of us into our own lives. Have we removed the idols from our own house, meaning our life? Or are we 
merely hiding them from sight so that other people can see us as religious and spiritual. I have to tell you what, God does know the difference. How many people go to church and call for the Spirit to fill them, but then they spend the rest of the week running as far away from God as absolutely possible? What are we going to do with the one who alone can bring us to the true water of life? Are we inviting the Spirit in for fellowship with Him, or are we inviting Him because of the gifts that He brings? And those idols in our home, what a variety we have. I got to tell you what, before I met the Lord, my house was full of stuff. We, you know, we have horoscopes and we knock on wood. We have feng shui that I used to sell in the business I had. We may have Buddha statues in our home. Before I met the Lord, I had Buddha statues all over the place. I, you know, I was in a Buddhist country and I thought, man, that's kind of cool. And people think I'm spiritual. And these are idols that set us at variance with God. What about porn? You know, porn is a type of idolatry because we're putting something in our thoughts and in our minds above our allegiance to God. What is it that gets our attention away from Jesus Christ? These idols are not just detrimental to us, but to others that come to us. And so we need to be careful of that. We might have an idol out of sports or maybe a car or maybe another person. We put somebody on such a pedestal that they become our idol and they take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. We do everything possible to show how religious we are on Sunday morning. And the rest of the week, we just run away from him. And God is not, I hate to tell you, God is not a cosmic dummy. He does see and he knows the wickedness of our own hearts. So let us strive for holiness and godliness and put Jesus Christ at the center of our focus. Verse 32, then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. When they get to the house, the first thing that Laban does is to do what? He unloads the camels and he feeds them. Only then does it note that he cared for the travelers. And it says he washed his own feet first and then the feet of his servant, of the servant and the people that were there. And you have to remember this. The camels are where the gifts are. Are we welcoming the Lord into our home because of the gifts that he brings? Or are we welcoming him into our home because we want to have a relationship with him and we want to fall deeply in love with the one who created us and sent Jesus Christ to be our savior and to lead us back to himself. As far as the washing of feet, I want you to know that this is a very interesting study in the Bible. If you ever do a study on anything, I would recommend a study on the washing of feet and how it weaves through the entire Bible, including Jesus in the gospel of John when he washes the disciples' feet. But it can be nicely summed up in the book of 3 John, which is the 64th book in the Bible. It's way towards the end. It's this teeny little one-page letter. He doesn't mention washing of feet, but he mentions the intent behind it. Here's what he says. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. In other words, we want to receive and send out the people that proclaim the gospel and are missionaries, and we want to do it in a manner that is worthy of God. Take care of these people that spend their life devoted to the preaching of God's word. Again, though, if we do these things for those in the church, you have to ask yourself, is it for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ or that we will somehow benefit from our actions? What is the motivation behind our deeds? 
in the end, if they are deeds that are lacking faith, they are as useful, useless as a football bat. And if anybody knows what a football bat is, it doesn't exist. That's how useless our deeds are if we're trying to do it for the sake of others. Verse 33, food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. This servant here, he's on a mission. And it was on a binding oath to Abraham. Before he eats a single bite, he wants to know if his mission is going to be a success. If so, this guy's food is going to digest much better, and he will have the relief of knowing that he has served his master well. In a beautiful parallel of this particular account, right from the life of Jesus as he sat with the woman at the well in Samaria, we read these words. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Just like Abraham's servant, Jesus was far more interested in accomplishing his task than he was about having a meal. I hope that this is something that every person here is going to reflect on in the week ahead. Is the Bible important to you or is sitting on Facebook? Is attending church more important than Sunday football? These are important questions because people are watching you and your actions, especially the little people in your home. You have to set your priorities right. Is helping the cause of Christ of more value to you than maybe going out for dinner three days a week? And I'm not trying to put any burden on anybody. It's nothing wrong with going out to dinner three days a week. But is that where your money is prioritized? If you can afford to do it, go out every night of the week. But if you have choices to make of supporting the church or supporting your church wherever you live, are you going to do that or are you going to take care of yourself? Eternity is forever. We're going to be eating from the well of God's grace for all of eternity. And we've got a short time right now to get this word out. What are your priorities? And just so you know, as I have said at least three jillion times in my life, it's why I traveled around America in the first place, I preached at all 50 capitals, was to get people to do one thing. Read your Bible. If you read your Bible for 30 minutes a day, it takes you 154 days to read your Bible because it takes 77 hours to read it out loud. You get an a audio CD of the Bible, it's 77 hours long. So 30 minutes a day, that's all that it takes to read your Bible twice in a single year. And guess what? If you buy that audio Bible, you can listen to it and you can hear your Bible at least twice just driving to work every, every day. It's not difficult. God just wants to have a relationship with you and this is how we do it is through his word. Buy an audio Bible, read in the morning, read at night, read when you're in the doctor's office. I said all this last week. I say it every week. It is the most important aspect of humanity is to know Jesus. And there's only one way you're ever going to know this man, this wonderful creator, is through his word. That brings us to our second thought today, which is the servant's faithfulness. Verse 34, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. In this society, at this time in history, a servant would have been known as a servant by sight. Laban would have known this, but now he knows whose servant. This is a very important verse because although Rebecca may have told him, until he hears this and he determines it later, he can't know this for certain. And this is important for us because there is a real God and there are false gods. The messengers and the servants of the false gods are out there and they are ready to deceive the world and to steal away those who would otherwise belong to Jesus Christ. The world is full of them. There are false religions. And if you don't like hearing this, I'm sorry. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That means every other religion on the face of the earth 
by default must be false. Buddhism, Islam, Sikhism, I could go down the list, Hinduism, we could go through thousands of them. But there are also false sects, S-E-C-T-S, within Christianity as well. There are people that bear the name of Jesus Christ, and yet they don't proclaim what the Bible proclaims. If you've ever heard of the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, that bears the name of Jesus. It's Mormonism. And they're polytheists. They don't believe in one God. They believe in many gods. It's not even close to biblical Christianity. The Jehovah's Witnesses. I started out there. I know what they teach, and it is not a Christian message. We have to be careful of who we listen to. Ellen G. White started the Seventh-day Adventists. And there are good people in these churches that really want to love Jesus Christ. But they're taken and strayed away because of the doctrine of these people. You've got to be very careful on who you listen to. When you stand at the judgment seat before God, he is going to ask you something. And I've got to tell you what my answer is, and I hope that everybody here will remember this so that they say it as well. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and none other. I worship the Lord. Verse 35, the Lord has blessed my master greatly and he's become great. Then he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Let's remember the role of the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. I read this to you a couple sermons ago. It's from John 15 so that we can understand what the servant is picturing. It says, but when the helper comes, this is Jesus speaking, whom I shall send from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And that's what this servant is doing. He was sent from Father Abraham testing of, testifying of Isaac, as we saw last week. In the same way, this servant of Abraham is sent on behalf of the son, and he's carrying all of the gifts necessary on those camels, just as the Spirit carries all of the gifts necessary to make sure that the church is functioning properly. We've seen many times in the past sermons how Abraham's wealth and his status increased from his when he moved out of uh into the promised land from outside the promised land he moved down to egypt and he moved throughout all of the promised land and he increased in worldly wealth and in power he had 318 trained servants who were so powerful they defeated four entire armies from the east all of this has happened since he departed his father's house because god was faithful to the promises that he made to him none of what abraham gained was gained wrongfully either. And we talked about that in a previous sermon, how some people say that what he did in Egypt and what he did before Abimelech was not right. And we went through that in detail, how what he did was filled with integrity. He is a man of honor. And I got to tell you something, if you live your life in the way that Abraham did with integrity and with honor, he will reward you as well. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel where you give so that you can get something back. God will not reward you for something when you expect something in return. When you do that, it implies that the people that you're giving to are the focus point of God's blessing instead of Jesus Christ. And that's not the way it is. They'll say, and I, I hear it on Christian TV every single day. I turn it on and there's this one guy. Every week he says the same thing. And God will unlock the gates of heaven, the, the, the windows of heaven, and he'll pour out a blessing on you. If you just send us this you know, seed offering, they couldn't care at all about you. They want your money, and that's what they're hoping for. And they're not going to unlock anything because the very implication of you giving in order to have the windows of heaven opened means that you're expecting something in return. And that is contrary to the entire message of the Bible. Here's what Jesus says from Luke 17. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. This servant comes in from the field. Are you going to tell him, okay, time for you to sit down and eat? Here's what he says. But will he rather not say to him, prepare something for my supper 
and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because these things were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. In other words, do your job as a faithful Christian and expect nothing in return. What God gives you is more than you deserve already anyway. And every single blessing that comes down should be received with thanks. I've said this before. I walk down the road and I see a pretty fat flower. I thank the Lord for it because I didn't deserve to see that flower. It could have just not been there. I smell the flowers blooming at night and I say, thank you, Lord. They come wafting through my window, the night blooming jasmine. I look at my puppy that should be dead because of all the things that's happened to her. I've had to give her CPR three times. Every time I get a kiss, I thank the Lord for it. And I get a lot of kisses during the day. God is infinitely good to us and we should be thankful for what we already have. I will guess that not one person here has gone without a meal unless voluntarily for a long, long time. And do we thank the Lord for those meals? Is it in our heart to give him the gratitude that he has shown us? How much more do we need? The happiest faces that I have ever seen in my life were when I was in the Philippines and Indonesia and Thailand. People so poor that they couldn't afford their own shirts and these little children out there playing. And here in America, you go to Walmart and all you see is children angry and bitter because they can't have what mom is passing by on the aisle. Where are our priorities? They need to be on thankfulness first. Verse 36, And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. There are a few reasons why this servant said this. The first was that now he knows that Abraham really is this guy's master. The servant personally knows about Sarah. And he also knows that she was without a child when she left the family many years earlier. They have every reason to now believe without any doubt that this guy is being truthful. But there is a second reason, is that Sarah is the cousin of Milcah, who was Bethuel's mother and Laban's grandmother. Rebekah is probably not much more than about 14 or 15 years old. And if Isaac was Sarah's son from a normal age, he'd probably be 70 years old or more, and this would not be a good marriage for Rebekah. But that leads to the third reason for this verse. It was to show the miraculous nature of Isaac's birth. While Rebekah is Milcah's granddaughter, Isaac is only Sarah's son. She had a child despite her old age. And that is the glorious working of God in Sarah's life. Verse 36 continues, And to him he has given all that he has, meaning Isaac. This verse right here is key to understanding the entire passage of what we're going through in chapter 24. The servant now gives the very best news of all from their perspective. What is Abraham's belongs to Isaac, his son, all of it. Isaac is the heir and the bride, therefore, will be joint heir with him in Abraham's house. Here we have, once again, a picture of Jesus, the church, and the Holy Spirit. Let me read you this from John 16. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. We talked about that. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He's speaking. This is Jesus speaking about the Spirit glorifying him. This is the purpose of the Spirit. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you, just as you see this servant declaring Abraham about Isaac. He will declare what is mine and take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, just as we just saw with Isaac having all things of Father Abraham. Therefore, I said he will take of what is mine and will declare it to you. 
God wasn't making a mistake when he picked these people in this account and put it in Genesis. Just like all of the Genesis accounts, they point to what is coming in redemptive history when Jesus Christ would come and walk among us and give his life up and then send his spirit to get a church that is suitable as a bride for Jesus Christ. The servant here is proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. The son has everything that belongs to the father and the bride is co-heir with Christ. And we find this in Romans 8. Listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness that out with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Exactly what's being proclaimed back here. This is a wonderful treat to see how God has taken these real human beings, these real people that really lived in history, and to beautifully show us his plan for us and our husband, Jesus Christ. The next 12 verses are a recount. I said this earlier. They're a recount of what we went through last week. It's a servant explaining what he went through to meet Rebecca. And because that sermon only took 45 minutes in order for me to give it, I'm just going to go ahead and repeat the entire sermon to you now, and then we'll get back into the rest of the sermon for today. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to read these verses so that you remember what we're, where we are, and then we'll get into the rest of the sermon. Verse 37. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family, and take a wife from my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk, he will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper in the way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the water, the well and drew water. This story is very similar to what we looked at last week until we come to this verse. This verse adds in something new. The servant here says, before I had finished speaking in my heart. This prayer was silent, and this is very important to note for a couple of reasons. The first is that Rebecca could not have heard him praying out loud, and therefore she did this by divine inspiration. God's hand was upon her to accomplish what he had just prayed for. And it's also important to note for another reason. And I'll tell you what, people email me about this from time to time. I had, I had this question very recently, and this is the answer that I give them. They ask the question, is it okay to pray silently? And my answer to them and to everybody else is that it depends on the prayer and upon the person. A silent prayer was also heard by God when Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the last judge of Israel, she made a silent prayer because she was barren also, just like uh, uh, Sarah was. She wanted to have a child, and she made the silent prayer. When she did, no vocalization occurred, and yet God heard her prayer. So I want to give you a little bit of Hebrew uh, understanding here, and this may not matter to most of you. I'll put it on the video in case you wanted to see it again. But the 17th letter of the Hebrew Aleph Bet is the letter Pei, which means every letter has a meaning. The meaning of teth means mud, and the meaning of bet means house. Well, the meaning of pay means mouth. And there are two ways that you can draw this particular letter. 
Very few letters in the Hebrew alphabet do this, but Pei is one of them. If it's at the beginning of a letter, it kind of looks like this. It looks like a mouth that's closed, okay? Anywhere in the, the word, it will be spelled this way. But if it's the last letter of the word, it will be spelled like this, with a mouth open. Jewish scholars say that the closed mouth, like this, refers to speech in this world, and that the open mouth refers to speech in the world to come. The word for mouth is also pay. So we, here we have the meaning of the word, we have the sound of the word, and the symbol that it describes all the same thing. Pay means mouth, okay? As believers, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are crucified with Christ. That means you are dead to sin in this world. And because of that, you do not need to vocalize your prayers. Your mouth is already open because you are speaking in the next world. The Holy Spirit is residing in you. You don't need to speak out loud because you've been sealed with him and he hears everything that's going on in you. We talked about that a week ago when you pray in grumblings that you can't even say. You don't know what to pray for. And the Spirit searches it out because you are a sealed believer in Jesus Christ. However, non-believers are back like this. They must vocalize their prayer. And the reason why is because they're not adopted children of God. And therefore, according to Isaiah, it says that he won't hear your sins because your sins or your prayers because your sins separate you from your God. God doesn't hear any prayer of any non-saved believer. He does not hear their prayers. He wants to hear one prayer from them, and that is the prayer of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And guess what? Paul says that prayer has to be out loud. Here it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's right out of Romans 10, 9. A prayer of confession must be audible, and after that, if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord, you don't have to ever utter a word again if you don't want to. He's there reading your thoughts and reading your heart, and he's leading you to the rock that is higher than you. Let's finish the account, and then we'll get into our final point. And I said to her, please let me drink, and she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder. And I said, and she said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist, and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. And that leads us to our third and final thought today. The bride is granted. Verse 49. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, this is a rather obvious plea from this servant. I've told you the story. I've given you all of the details. Now, please give me your answer. The servant has nothing further to add, just as Abraham told him what to say and nothing further. He has nothing further to add. Abraham's brother, Nahor, however, has seven other sons. And if they say no, he's going to use this idiom that he just gave. I'll turn to the right hand or to the left. It means I have other options. And that's what he's going to exercise if they don't grant this daughter. Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. I want you to know that in the Hebrew, and this you wouldn't understand this unless you read the Hebrew, and that's why I wish that they'd get a little more detail when they did translations. The order of the words says, then answered Laban and Bethuel, and the word for answered is singular. It's not plural. Because of this, we can see that Laban gave the answer for his father. And, you know, you have to question yourself, why? Why would he do that? 
There's a Jewish scribe named Jarki. I quote him from time to time. He came very close, I think, to the reason why. He said that uh, Laban was wicked and impudent, jumping in and speaking for his father. But he doesn't explain why. He knew, this guy Laban, that if they didn't agree, he wasn't going to get doodly squat off of those camels. And so he jumped in and spoke on behalf of his fathers. And not only that, he did it in the name of the Lord. He goes, oh, yes, yes, we agree. Of course we do. This came from the Lord. And so how can we speak against it? By saying this, he has put anyone else in that house who feels differently in a very bad position. Because if this is from God and they didn't agree, now they're fighting against God. This is what Laban is implying, and he's doing it to get wealthy off of his sister. I have a question for you. Does anybody here see TV evangelists in this? They say things in the name of the Lord all the time. The Lord just told me. I, I hear him say that, and it drives me insane. The Lord didn't say anything to that person. He wants you to send him your money. And I am not opposed to having people give to the church. Please give to the church. Please fund missionaries. Please do the things that God wants you to do. But when people say something in the name of the Lord, all of a sudden everybody gets scared and they say, oh, he got a word from the Lord. How can I go against that? When in fact, he didn't get anything from the Lord. He just wants you to now feel imposed upon because he's speaking presumptuously. So be careful with those kind of things. Verse 51, here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. This bride is granted and this offer is accepted. Man, it's wonderful to think how God worked this out, even with a crummy guy like Laban sitting there. The son is going to have a bride. God has taken this lovely young Rebecca, and he has divinely orchestrated her life, just like the name of her, the, the, the meaning of her name implies. She's like a cow that's being led by a wise master. And in the same way, as I said earlier, God is divinely orchestrating your life he is doing it for you and for all of the people that he foreknows will become a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. Those who do accept Jesus are going to be a part of this and you're going to be radiant. You're going to be dressed in white and you're going to be standing before the creator. I simply can't wait for it. We are going to be the master's son's bride, just as the Lord has spoken. It is a glorious word and a glorious picture of what God has done for the people who are willing to follow him by faith. Verse 52, our last verse of the day. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant's servant heard the words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. The servant prostrates himself to the earth, which is just completely out like this. He's in absolute humble adoration and in great gratitude for the kind hand of the Lord that is upon him. And in the same way, I tell you what, the Spirit rejoices over every human soul that calls on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that he is wooed. And Jesus said that even the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. So this is the picture that we're receiving of this guy falling down on his face. And along with him, we need to understand that we have an obligation to those people to get this word out and to tell them about Jesus and that he really is coming again, and he is going to be looking for people that called on him in spirit and in truth, not expecting anything in return. If you have never known the joy of calling on Jesus Christ personally, I want to take just two minutes. I do this at the end of every sermon. I just want to explain to you what is necessary for you to be a saved believer in Jesus Christ. Nothing difficult about it, and yet it's the most difficult decision any person will ever make. The Bible says that all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. And it says that because of that, we are separated from God. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die. But death entered at the time of Adam, which means that all of us inherited Adam's sin as well. 
We simply cannot go back before that sin and be reconciled to God. It's impossible. We are condemned already according to Jesus Christ in John 3.18. And yet he did something wonderful by sending his son to take our place. He went to the cross of Calvary and the torture and the punishment that we deserve went on to him. And then the Bible shows us these examples of what's called substitution. I've taken my wrath out, my anger at the sins of the world, and I am placing it on my son. And if you will simply, by faith, by faith alone, ask for you to be forgiven of your sins and to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And why does he throw in that qualifier if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Because it implies that you believe in the resurrection because nobody would call on a dead Lord. You'd be as stupid as a football bat there too. Nobody calls on a dead Lord. He really came out of the grave to prove that he is God incarnate and that he can do every other thing that his word says, including us, including leading us down streets of glory for his honor. So if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or if you're not living for him right now, ask him to forgive you and turn your life over to him and just make that reconciliation with God possible. And then after that, go out and tell people. The Bible says the redeemed of the Lord say so. We don't just sit at home and hope that somebody else will do it. Just tell people. Here at the, the restaurant, I just want to tell you about Jesus real quickly. The Spirit will do the work. He's going to woo those people. We see that right here. Here's our closing verse for today. It's from Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. Will you get the, uh, the communion ready, Thor? The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The words of the Lord are sweeter than honey. And I got to tell you what, I got a beehive. It's right down the road at my house. And I love to open it up and taste the different honeys that come out of there at different times of the year. God's word is so much sweeter than that. It is so much purer than that. It is so wonderful. Take time to read your Bible. I have... Uh, our sermon next week is um, Genesis 24. It's verses 53 through 67. It'll be the fourth of the four sermons in this chapter, and then we'll be done with it. And it's entitled, The Son Receives His Bride. And of course, before we take communion, I do this every single week. I make a poem based on the ver verses that we read earlier uh, during the uh, sermon. So here we go. Let me read the poem, and they'll have uh, communion ready, and uh, we'll take that, and we'll all be done. This is called, The Bride is Granted. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to meet the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on her wrists, he knew things were swell. And when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, Thus the man spoke to me that the man, uh, to the man he went, and there by the camels at the well stood the servant mister. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, before the day is spent. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared everything even a place for the camels. So let the dinner bell ring. Then the man came to the house and the camels he did unload and provided straw and feed for them, the camels that he rode. And he brought water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him too. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told what I am here to do. And he said, speak on. It was time to hear the account. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. My words do not discount. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, you will be told. And he has become great indeed. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, also servants, camels and donkeys. Now let my words proceed. And Sarah, though she was old, bore to my master a son and Abraham to everything he has bestowed. 
And so let me recount to you all that has now been done to bring me here and to whom the credit is owed. So he repeated the story of the sermon from last week, and certainly the family's rapt attention, it did peak. When he finished his retelling of the account, he then said, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. If not, I will turn to the right hand or to the left instead. I'm on a mission from my master, as you can plainly see. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This is from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go that she may be wed. Let her be his wife. The Lord has spoken and we have understood. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their word that bowing himself to the earth, he worshiped the Lord. This story shows us that God is in control of all the details which occur in our life. All of our joys and sorrows are written in his scroll, every happy moment as well as each moment of strife. God attends to us in each and every way, and so we should return to him our praise each and every day. Let us offer to him our lives to direct and use for his glory, and let us remember to tell others of the gospel story. It is through Jesus that he reveals his very heart, and it is through his spirit that he searches ours as well. And the spirit does rejoice when the gospel we impart. Yes, he rejoices when to other others the good news we do tell. So let us share this wonderful gospel story. And to God, let us give praise and honor and glory. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful story of Rebecca, the bride of Isaac, and how it pictures us, the bride of Jesus Christ. And we long for the day when we will stand in his presence, free from the stain of sin, free from any trials or troubles or loss, loved ones that go the, the way of the earth and uh, uh, just bad things that come into our life. This is all temporary. Help us to focus on the eternal and not worry about the temporary, but to just be in spirit and in truth at every moment of our life and to thank you for every blessing you send to us. Help us in these things and help us to rejoice in you and to tell others always about the glorious workings of the cross of Calvary, our Lord and Savior who was resurrected to eternal life and now promises the same to all who call on him. Thank you, God. Thank you. And we give you praise and honor and glory in his name alone. Amen.